listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you, then, will worship me, and all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. What a joy to be with you all, to worship together, to continue to just practice this habit of showing up and singing and listening to the Word of God so that we can draw near to the heart of God together. Uh, showing up on a Sunday morning is just an important practice, and I'm so glad that you um, have made that an important practice and you're here. If you're first time guest, we want to say uh, thank you for coming. We pray that a word will be sung or a song spoken that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. Two really quick things. One, man, I really hope that you can make it tonight to our members meeting. Uh, members meeting is where we go behind the scenes and we just talk about things that we can't address on a Sunday morning and that has to do with our mission, vision, and values. So uh, we believe here that God has called us to reach people with the gospel, to build them up as a church and to send them into the nations, into their neighborhoods. And it's during these member meetings that we talk about how we are seeking to accomplish that and how we are seeking to equip the body for the work of ministry. So please uh, come out for an hour, 15 minutes. Let us talk to you. Let us pray with you um, so that you can know um, how the Lord is using your church and you um, in this city. This is a very important uh, season in, uh, in American history and in, in world history. And I think that uh, we need and we want to be a church that is filling up our city with the presence of Christ. And so you contributing to these meetings is just a great opportunity for us to do that together and to learn more about how we can step into the darkness with the light of Christ. Uh, and then second, I just want to say, um, man, I just feel like the Lord uh, has a word for us this morning. And um, I pray that you would just silence your hearts and try to do your best to give him your attention as we dive into the word together. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need 
your presence and your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to give us spiritual power and desire so that we may see you more clearly. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. Even now. In Jesus' name, amen. 2016, I was called to uh, become pastor here at Sojourn Midtown. It was a, a faith walk. Um, and during the installation service of uh, coming to uh, Sojourn Midtown, um, as I look back and I think about it, man, it, it really it feels like a dream. It was such a, a powerful service. Uh, my wife and I were deeply encouraged as uh, saints from Sojourn, as well as from the previous church that I pastored, Forest Baptist Church, which is a historic African-American church. Um, many saints gathered together, mixed in, as they had pretty much uh, sent us here to Sojourn into an area that was majority black, um, that at the time uh, was a majority, mostly white church, um, in order to be the lead pastor and to help this church uh, to reach its community and to become a multi-ethnic church. Uh, it was during a worship service, powerful experience that uh, one of the preachers that day uh, was preaching and he was preaching on uh, the life of David. And I'll never forget, just as I was filled with joy and anticipation, um, him looking me right in the eye and saying, Jamal, just as David had a spear thrown at him by Saul, so Satan has a spear aimed at you to take you out. And I remember thinking, this was such a happy service. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think you might be missing the Lord because everything's happy and it's going to stay this way, right? Uh, but it was a word from the Lord. And it became uh, my experience and our, our church's experience. And he said, not only did was Satan aim a spear at me, but he was aiming a spear at our church. Um, and I believe part of the reason that he was aiming that spirit at our church is because uh, we were seeking to be a church that was just going to be an expression of God's multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-social economic vision. And in order to do that, we were going to be pressing against some strongholds that we have in this nation, which is racism, racialization, classism, and generationalism. And I remember uh, just after that service, it was a couple days later, I'm kind of going to the office for my first full day at work. And on the way there, I felt a unique sickness, a sickness that I had never felt before. I stumbled into the door. I'm sweating. I'm not feeling well. And I remember talking to a couple staff people and everybody's like, man, just go home. And I was so bummed that on my first really full day in the office, that I was uh, going to have to turn around and go home. So I went home and I'm driving home and I stop on a highway, pull over, and I just start throwing up. And I pull, keep, get back in the car, go all the way home and get into the driveway. And I'm like crawling to the door. Amber kind of grabs me, uh, calls for help. I get taken to the hospital. And that would start a journey, a multi-year journey of tests and specialists and people uh, looking into uh, my sickness and trying to figure out what was wrong. 
as it would feel like a sphere would be or a knife was stabbed in my back and my lower uh, extremities would just kind of shut down and I couldn't walk for a short time and eventually would have to walk with a cane for weeks. It was humiliating and it was very hard because no one knew what was actually happening. And this would go on for multiple years. But on top of that, not only was a spear thrown at me, a spear was thrown at our church. 2016 was an incredibly tumultuous year, not only politically in this nation, but we experienced a number of leadership challenges here, which led to a number of very difficult transitions in a season of what felt like chaos and confusion. And when I think about that season, I think about how God was shaping us and forming us, but I also think about the personal darkness, the wilderness that I felt in my soul. And I have some very sharp memories of not wanting to get out the bed in the morning and my wife pushing me out the bed and praying over me and just making it, taking it day by day, step by step, saying, Lord, you called me here. You called me to this place, um, but I don't know why. In Psalm 23, we read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Listen to this. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's an interesting connection there that the Lord leads the psalmist into righteousness for his name's sake. And the very next refrain is the valley of the shadow of death. God often gives us seasons of still waters and then transitions us, leads us by his Holy Spirit into seasons that are wilderness experiences into a a valley of the shadow of death. And I stand here eight years later, just celebrated eight years a couple weeks ago here at Sojourn, which was uh, pretty amazing because um, it amounted for the long, I'm now here at Sojourn longer than I was at Forest Baptist Church, a church that we deeply love that was all black. And in reflecting on where we are as a church right now and what God is doing, I am, by God's grace, happy in the Lord. And consider this the honor of a lifetime to be one of the pastors here at this church. But those wilderness experiences are real. And if you don't know how to navigate the wilderness, If you don't know how to go in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, you can very easily end up somewhere that you did not plan to be. Jesus in this text has just been in still waters. He was just baptized. And as he is being baptized, the Bible says that the heavens open, a dove comes from heaven, and he hears the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then it's as if God transitions him 
from the place of still waters to the valley of the shadow of death. He now is going to go into the wilderness and he is going to go into the wilderness, the Bible says, led by the Holy Spirit there to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is an important theological fact that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, but the Holy Spirit, God, did not tempt Jesus. James chapter 1 says that God tempts no man, but each man is tempted when his own desires lead them there. So God does not tempt us. God tests us, and he allows Satan to tempt us. And he doesn't test us to see what we're made of. God already knows what we're made of. He knows what's in our heart. He tests us so that we can see where we are and so that we can come to the place of spirit dependence instead of self-dependence. But Satan tests us because he wants to take you out. He wants to get you off of God's plan for your life. He is a roaring lion and he is seeking to devour you. And he is a liar. And his whole purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And theologically, we see in the book of Luke, that what Luke is showing us with this temptation is that Jesus is not Israel. And he's calling now, amen. (laughs) Pick up, pick up, amen. (laughs) Jesus is not Israel. Israel is in the wilderness, led by the Spirit. They go through the Jordan River. And there they are tempted for 40 days. God promises them a promised land. They fall into temptation over and over. And a 40-day journey ends up being 40 years. God leads Jesus after being baptized into the Jordan, into the wilderness. And he says, Satan, take your best shot. This is my Messiah. He is full of my spirit. Where Israel fell, he would not fail. And this is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But I want you to notice something about each of these temptations. Every single temptation is geared at Jesus as an individual with the hopes of making him self-centered. Every temptation is a temptation to lure Jesus away to Satan's side, to Satan's voice, so that he could become all about himself and forget God's call on his life, forget about the multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic church that God is redeeming when people place their faith and trust in Christ. He wants to get Jesus with tunnel vision so that he only can see and only can be concerned about himself. Listen to me. In the same way, that is Satan's temptation for you in your life. He wants to invert you. He wants you to become self-centered. He wants you to think that the world should revolve around you. And the work of the Spirit is to push us from going inward to outward and upward to remember like Jesus that we have been saved by grace through faith, but not just from something, but to something. 
and that God has saved us, redeemed us, placed his affection on us, not so that we not so that we can be self-fulfilled, but so that we can pick up our crosses daily and follow Jesus to the new Jerusalem where there is life, joy, and peace and bring as many people along with us. There's three very real temptations that you will face. There's three very real temptations that you are facing. And the first temptation is a temptation to provide for yourself. See this in his text that it says that Jesus left the Jordan full of the spirit, was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Listen to this. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, listen to this. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, remember, God, the father spoke to Jesus. You are my beloved son. Satan's temptation and each temptation is going to be a temptation to confuse Jesus about his identity, or if, since you are the son of God, notice what he says, you can tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So Satan comes, he tempts Jesus. And underneath this temptation really is this this prodding, this, this trying to draw Jesus away with this logic. Listen, man, you're God's son, and as God's son, you shouldn't be in a wilderness hungry. And you can change this. You can change this in a snap of a finger. You can, you can just turn this stone into bread. And we know that Jesus can do it. We read a few chapters later that Jesus is going to multiply two fish and, uh, 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 and five loaves for 5,000 people. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a priest. Jesus is king of the universe. He is God. He could do it. But why is this a temptation? It's a temptation because Satan is tempting Jesus to provide for himself outside of God's will and God's timing. He wants to see if Jesus is going to be a prophet for hire. If Jesus will listen to any other voice besides God the Father, and if Jesus will do miracles outside of God's will and God's timing, provide for yourself. He wants Jesus to become self-reliant. And notice how Jesus responds. It is written, man must not live on bread alone. He literally quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8.3. In Deuteronomy chapter 8.3, Moses records the, the words of God. And what Moses records for the children of Israel is he says this, God delivered you from Egypt and he led you into the wilderness so that he might humble you. And then he provided you with, with manna from heaven. Sometimes God leads us to the wilderness and he allows things to be tight, money to be funny, relationships to be strained, it's internal pain and confusion and, and, and apathy. Sometimes he leads us to these wilderness experiences in order to humble us so that we would cry out to him and so that he can meet our needs and we would know that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And what what has God's word spoken? It has spoken that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
The cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. What does his word declare? He shall, Philippians 4, supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Sometimes God allows us to go through seasons of lack and doubt. But what he's testing us in is whether or not we are going to be spirit dependent or self-dependent? Are we going to trust God when we can't trace him, or are we going to force things, doubt his love, and make our own way? And here's what's crazy about this temptation. You want to know what's crazy about this temptation? You want to know what's real about this temptation? Is what Satan tempts Jesus with is actually a necessity. It's a good thing. And most of the things that we are tempted with at a surface level, are good things. They are things that we consider are are needed or that are good. And we begin to doubt God's goodness because we're like, Lord, if you really love me, you would give me this thing that will help me to flourish. And what God is trying to teach us is that the thing that we most need more than food, more than than even water, we're created to inhabit water, to inhabit food, that the thing that we need more than that is him. It's his presence. You can have food, you can have water, you can have the dream of your life, you can have the person of your life, you can hit all of your goals, all of your metrics, and without him, you will wither away. Your soul will not be virtuous. But at the same time, if you have Jesus, and if by faith you are faith walking and faith speaking and living a life of dependence, silver and gold I may not have, as the song say, but give me Jesus. Question for you is what is that good thing that you think God is withholding for you that is, that is needed, that tempts you towards self-dependence and self-reliance? What is that thing that you are just so sure that if you had it, you would be better and you would be able to worship God more freely? And if you look at that thing and it's drawing you to bitterness and resentment rather than dependence and worship, even if it is a good thing, it has become an idol. How might Satan be tempting you to provide for yourself today? Second. Not only does Satan tempt Jesus to provide for himself, but he tempts Jesus to kind of to prematurely promote himself. Look at the text. We see in verse five, he says, so he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is a supernatural experience. That old devil said to him, I will give you their splendor. Like, I'll give you their food, I'll give you their science, I'll give you their arts, I'll give you their people, and all this authority, because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. And to some degree, that's true. The Bible calls Satan the prince of this world, the the ruler of this present evil age. He's in control of the world's system, 
said, I'll give it to you. And notice what Jesus says. And Jesus asked him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so we see here that Satan is like taking his gloves off. He's like, this is what I'm about. I am about being worshiped. Satan wants to be in Jesus's place. He wants a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping him. He wants the world to revolve around him. So he tempts God's Messiah and he just lays it all out there. If you worship me, I'll give you all of this. The world will be at your fingertips. Now, what is happening here? What is happening here is Satan wants Jesus to promote himself to king prematurely. He wants Jesus to go for the crown without a cross. Satan's read the Old Testament. He knows that God's Messiah is going to, to rule on that Jerusalem hill and that all the kings will come and pay homage to him, Psalm 2, and, and kiss the son. He, he, he knows that this is the promise. He also knows the Bible better than uh, the Jewish people of that day. He knew that this Messiah will also be the suffering servant of, in Isaiah, the one who will be bruised for the people of God's iniquities. And he says, listen, your father who claims to love you wants you to suffer to get this. I'll give you this without you having to suffer. And the same is true for you today. Satan every day is tempting us, first with the lie that we're suffering because God doesn't really love us or that we're an anomaly and everybody else has it so well, but we don't. <laughs> and he is tempting us to promote ourselves by creating an environment that is free of suffering, free of sacrifice. He is tempting us to try to create a, a world in which we are, it's all about us. And he's trying to paint a bigger and better picture of life without God that is free from suffering. But the reality is, is everyone suffers, whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. Part of the fall is every single person suffers. And if a person tells you everything is great all the time, it's because they're incredibly self-aware. All nine types of the Enneagram suffers. You don't know what that is. Come to Connect Room. I'll tell you later. Every single human being. Jesus responds, worship the Lord God and serve him only, which is quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. I think it's also interesting if we just pause and imagine this scene, imagine if Jesus had taken Satan up on this offer and to just imagine what that would have meant for me and for you. When we are tempted by Satan to sin, our sin doesn't just impact us, it impacts the people around us. When you allow a besetting sin to become welcomed in your norm without giving it to God, giving it to the Spirit, without fighting it, talking in community to, to get help so that you can grow um, by grace, 
through the spirit, when you allow that to become your norm, it affects how you show up. It affects how you show up to other believers. It affects whether or not you, you share your faith with others. And so Satan wants to throw Jesus off so that he can essentially throw him off from his mission and so that he won't be able to redeem the people of God. Third, you see this temptation to perform for others. Look at the text. It says this, and Jesus answered him. In fact, I'm going to go back to this real quick. I want to point out something. It was written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to the temple, to Jerusalem, to stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, um, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him. So I want you, uh, the third thing is this temptation to perform for others, to perform for others. Notice what happens here in this text. Uh, Jesus then is taken to the pinnacle of the temple and he is tempted again, if you are the son of God. And he says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And then he quotes the scripture back to Jesus. So Satan has been observing Jesus. Jesus, every time Satan comes, says, it is written. Satan says, okay, I'm going to quote the Bible back to you. And he does. He quotes Psalm 91, 11, but he misquotes it out of context. And he essentially says, it is written that if you were to kick a, a stone and hurt your feet, that angels will come and they would support you. They would help you. And so Satan is able to adapt. And what Satan wants is two things. One, for Jesus to live his life testing God. This is what God said. And if God says that you are his son and that he loves you, then you should be able to do this and he should be able to respond like this. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not Gideon. I don't need to put a fleece down to see if this is what the Lord wants. I am secure in my identity. And I'm not Israel, who over and over in the wilderness is going to test God to see every single time, every single time they got into hardship, it was like they were going into hardship for the first time ever. And they forgot all of his goodness. They forgot that he saved them from Egypt. He broke the back of Pharaoh. He miraculously delivered them with, with 10 plagues and brought them out in the most dramatic fashion with gold and silver and clothes. And, and he proved to them that he's faithful. He opened the, the, the sea and allowed them to walk on dry land. And as soon as they got over, over and over, every single test, it was as if they were testing God's love again. Second thing that Satan is doing here is Satan is trying to get Jesus to perform. Perform for me. Perform for others. Jump. Put on a spectacle. Put on a show. This isn't in the text, but I imagine that if people were at the temple during this time and if it was a public display, that Jesus essentially would have gone from Messiah to a circus clown. And this is what Jesus is after in the Gospels, this performative spirituality, this, this performative Christianity 
that rather than listening to the voice of the Lord, which affirms our sonship, is living externally for the approval of other people, practicing external righteousness, not for the glory of God and from a place of safety and love, but to gain love from others in order to feel secure. And Jesus models for us what he's going to teach just a a chapter or two later about not practicing our righteousness to be seen by others. And he also is going to set a standard in this text for Satan and for the religious leaders that says, I am not here to perform for you. They are going to come to Jesus and say, give us a sign. We've heard about the blind that you've healed. We've heard about the lepers that you healed. But right now, on the spot, give us a sign. And Jesus is going to say, if you want a sign, here it is. Just as the Son of Man was in the belly of a fish for three days. So just as, as, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of a fish for three days and rise again. In other words, I'm not going to be this type of prophet that is performing for you. I am going to do what my father told me to do, which is to die and rise again. And if that doesn't convince you that I am who I said that I am, then your heart is hardened and you love the darkness rather than light. And it's a real temptation for us, listen, for us to just be performative. And here at Sojourn, man, if you're here, like, and I'm sure I'm contributing to this in ways that I, I don't know, but listen to me care less about, and I pray that the Lord will help us to care less, I pray that the Lord will help me to care less about putting up a face or a, a lifestyle that impresses you, <laughs> that makes you think that I'm more holier or more better or more spiritual. That's not what it's about. God is not after our external work so that we can just impress, so that people can be impressed with us. God is after our hearts. And I pray that this will be a church and a place where we can put our weak foot forward, where we can be authentic and translucent, not always transparent because everybody don't need to know everything, but where we can show up as a real human being who has been saved by grace, who does not have it together, but who is pressing towards the call of life in Christ Jesus. And if you come to Sojourn to be entertained, you're at the wrong place. But if you're here because you know that God has saved you and you want to be at a church that is striving towards faithfulness like many other churches in the city and who want to live a life that makes much of Jesus die and go home to be with him, then you're in the right place. Who are you tempted to perform for? 
Who are you trying to impress? How is Satan tempting you to promote yourself, to prove yourself, or to provide for yourself outside of God's will and timing? So how do we fight against these very real temptations? Three really quick things. First, you root your identity in your belovedness. We talked about this last week. When I came to Sojourn, I'm telling y'all, and this is embarrassing to, to admit, but when I came to Sojourn, man, it was really difficult. I, there was a constant identity crisis. I remember going to a, a function coming from a historic African-American church to an all-white church, and there being a whole nother set of expectations and history and, and culture that many times I just felt out of place. And I went to a, a, a venue here in Louisville where it was going to be... Uh, the kind of black and white pastors in Louisville all in one space. And coming to Sojourn, um, you know, people really, some people really misunderstood why I would leave a historic black church and come to a white church. And people in my community uh, really took that to heart and felt like I was a sellout or coming for the wrong reasons. And then I came into a white space with pastors and people um, who, honestly, I just didn't know their culture. I just didn't fit in. And it just often felt cold and I felt distant. And I felt like I had to be someone different in front of each person. And it was killing me. And I go to this function and half the room is black and half the room is white. And I had an existential crisis. But it was one of the most significant days of my life other than the Lord saving me and the day that, that I became Jesus and, and marriage and, and all that this day is the most significant day of my life. I felt like I heard, not audibly, but the Lord speak to me in my heart and say, Jamal, if you live your life like this, trying to impress or please people, no one will never know the true you and you will drive yourself crazy. And at that moment, I felt a rush from the Holy Spirit that brought so much healing and joy and peace. And since then, though not perfectly, I feel a peace within myself and who God has called me to be. And God told me nobody else has to understand what I called you to or why I called you to. I'm the one that called you. They didn't call you. And I'm the one that shaped you and that made you. And you can't see what I'm doing. They can't see what you're doing. The same is true for you. And what's going to heal this voice? It is, it is the voice of God saying to you in Christ what he said to Jesus in those baptismal waters. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved child. You are loved. You are appreciated. You are affirmed. You are approved. You are my beloved child. You are a child. And I'm proud of you. And God says that to you this morning, if you are in Christ, and every single morning, even when you have sinned and fallen short. He says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. You may not experience his love at that moment because habitual sin grieves the Holy Spirit and hinders us experiencing God's love. Experiences 
It grieves the nearness of God. It makes you feel distant. It makes you feel guilty. It covers you in shame. But even on those days, God says, you are mine. And in Christ, I don't see your sin. I see my son. And where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And there's double grace, James 4. Turn, return to me, there's double grace for you. The problem is that all of us have Satan's voice in our mind. It's been said that after the fall, that it's as if a tree was planted in our mind and a serpent is on that tree every single day. And that serpent every day to every single person here in every Enneagram type is doing the same thing. That serpent is lying to us. And that's all he speaks is lies. And just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he wants to make us self-centered. He wants us to question God's goodness and God's love for us. And it's lie after lie after lie. And the job of a Christian is to sit still before the Lord so that we can hear his voice and we can say to that devil, shut up, you liar. I am loved. Friend shared this quote based off uh, last week's sermon with me this week, and powerful quote by Brennan Manning. It says, "If you took all the love of all the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all their goodness, kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and united all those qualities in a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you." and me at this very moment. What would life look like for you? What would it look like for me if we just became consumed with that voice and that love? I can tell you, it's not perfect, but I'm telling you, I was on my way to driving myself crazy, trying to keep up and be loved by people. And though it still rears its daily head, its, its head daily, that old serpent, I have grown stronger in being able to discern his voice from God's voice and settle my soul and remind myself of who I am in Christ. And more than that, I have people around me when I'm listening to Satan's voice who knows my temptations and my story, who can speak truth to me. Remind me that I am a loved man. Second and quickly, it's about practicing the disciplines of abstinence. Or as one theologian says, disengagement. And what are these disciplines? These are disciplines that keep us from following the world's pattern and path. And each of these disciplines can help us to be spirit dependent rather than dependent on the world, disconnect rather than just constantly stay connected to the world, which hinders us from hearing the voice of God and living in our identity. So you notice here, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. He is fasting before he starts his ministry. And what, why is he fasting? He's fasting to show that his dependence and his reliance is gonna be on the spirit and on the Lord. And he needs God more than he needs physical food. And so he intentionally disciplines himself and he fasts. 
And fasting may not be for you. There may be some body image things or some medical things for you, or it may just be something that just does not work for you. But there's other ways in which you can intentionally discipline yourself so that you're not just hopping around to these things that can temporarily bring pleasure and distract you from your deepest need, which is the presence of God and the power of God. So for some of us, we have to be around people because we're empty if we're not. We have to have a next experience. Life is about the next experience. And perhaps God is calling you to solitude to carve out some schedules so you can be alone, so that you can actually hear his voice in silence, so that you can cultivate an external and inner stillness and quietness before the Lord. Or secrecy. Some of us, man, we, we are so dependent upon other people's love that, that everything we do that's good, we have to post it on Instagram or work it into a conversation because we think that what's going to heal us is someone accepting us. And perhaps God's invitation to you is to practice your righteousness in secrecy and to do some good works where no one else knows it but your heavenly father. And that creates virtue and stamina and beauty. Jesus called it the secret place. Or maybe it's this frugality. The way we try to silence that voice of Satan who is lying to us is by just going to Amazon, finding something we like, pushing click, having it so we can get the dopamine shot of acting surprised when we see it on our door <laughs> and opening it. And then finally, it's just knowing God's word. Every single movement here, Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And it's not just about knowing it in your mind. It's knowing it in your heart and trusting the God that is behind his word. I have hidden my word in your heart, my heart, so that I will not sin against you. David said. Talked about Jesus being the new and better Israel who will be led to the wilderness and who would not sin. But he's also the new and better Adam. The verse before this passage is the genealogy of Jesus and it ends with son of Adam, son of God. Ultimately, the way that we grow in fighting temptation is by looking to the second Adam. The first Adam was put in a garden, was given a wife, could eat of every tree in the garden but one, and he failed. The second Adam was taken to the wilderness, was alone, had nothing to eat, and he succeeded. And he was nailed to a cross. And he was buried in a tomb. And he rose on the third day with all power. And he is seated on the right-hand side of the Father. And you, beloved, are seated 
with them. Worship him in him alone. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.